We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured on Celluloid on Make Time for This. Proudly a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm well. Um, I'm I'm here. I'm ready to talk about a great movie. It's been, it's been a good streak of me seeing good movies up until I saw Don't Worry Darling, but we don't have to think about that right now. That's in the past. You did that to yourself? Um, just the, let the record show that my recommendation I, record is still pretty strong. I, I would say that Olivia Wilde did that to the world at large, is, is how I would view Don't Worry Darling. Okay, we'll accept that as, as an alternate answer. Um, we are here today to talk about Decision to Leave, the latest film from Korean master director Park Chan-wook and we'll talk a little bit more generally about Park and his career to date the type of movies he makes and I think for me maybe something that will come into this is increasingly the type of movies he makes and how they differ from what he made early in his career what he really made his name for on the international stage um I'll be very candid up front this movie absolutely blew me away completely under blew me away maybe is more finely attuned to my taste in film um, than it will be for the average person. But I was looking forward to a new Park Chan-wook film, but I wasn't quite prepared for just how much I love Decision to Leave. With that, I insisted that you, Andrew, got yourself to a theater. I I even I looked up theaters in your area that might be showing it with you after a podcast. I was like, hey, you got to go and see this. Um. And I, you're, I think from our conversation, you're familiar with Park Chan-wook. You've seen Old Boy before. But would I be right in saying this isn't something that necessarily would have been on your radar or you would have made one of your your semi-regular, am I being generous, am I being harsh, excursions to the cinema to see if I hadn't given you like a big, big push. So what were your what were your feelings, your expectations going into this whole process going to see decision to leave 
Yeah, this this would have followed the portrait of a lady on fire, parasite, drive my car type of uh, journey for me to see it when it's submitted. Or I guess this wasn't the case for portrait of a lady on fire, but uh, like when it starts getting the critical buzz or the Academy Awards buzz, that's when I would would go see it. Uh, obviously, the only frame of reference I have for his films is Old Boy which I saw many years ago, uh, I think described to you as bonkers. Uh, and after describing this film as bonkers, but, and then we were like, no, this one actually qualifies as bonkers old boy. Uh, a lot going on in that one. Great movie. Um, and so going into decision to leave, I really had, uh, no expectations and also had no idea what the movie was about. Not at all. Didn't even look up a tagline for, for decisions to leave. And, much like any film, I think, uh, was rewarded for that. A really just technically, I think, <laughs> and visually fascinating movie with uh, a really entertaining and familiar plot line that I think is, like like we talked about last week, I think th- this is a very accessible film for all audiences because it's just such an entertaining movie as the each threads keep being pulled. I mean, it's a story about uh, steering into or avoiding steering into uh, desires that will take you down a road. You don't want to go down. It's about, you know, (laughs) boredom and wanting and fascination. And yeah, I was just locked into every frame. I was telling you my big takeaway. Um, was that you know those apps that are like here's the the frame of the day like one perfect shot type of a thing this is a movie that has every frame seems so meticulously calculated and detailed um and it just creates a world that is is real but also uh like highlights that kind of uh in insomnia insomnia laden noir world that that he wants to create um and then uh like a movie we talked about uh a few weeks ago but in a much different way there's a a very notable split in this movie uh uh, in i guess setting and time and the way it's done in this and this film is not at all the jarring uh experience that makes the second half of the film not half but you know close to that uh feel disjointed this lands the plane in such an incredible way and it's m- probably my favorite ending of the year and i'm you know i'm a sucker for for great endings and this was that this is a movie that uh is battling it out with banshees of Sharon for my favorite movie of the year so far and uh yeah uh, it's 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 a good thing that it blew you away, so we didn't have to be talking about this in February. Yeah, and I guess to to give some background, Old Boy is certainly the I think the touchstone in the Western world for most even casual movie going fans. Um, I think it just it gained a reputation for some of its kind of twists and turns and shocking moments and ultra violence and being hyper stylized, and it is the thing that I think beyond necessarily the kind of people who've been jumping in and sampling uh, Park Chan-wook's work ever since that they're all likely to be familiar with. There are a couple of other exceptions, which we'll get to. Um, 
I mean, the the jumping off point for Park's career, um, both in Korea and I guess starting to garner acclaim worldwide, is what is technically his third feature film, although the first two he has done his best to completely bury and destroy all existing copies. Um, so it, it, is, it kind of acts as if it's his debut feature film, and that is Joint Security Area, um, film with, I guess, elements of murder mystery set in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Um, released the year 2000, it was a massive, massive hit in, in South Korea. I believe it was the most watched film in Korean history at that time. And that really launched him into a different stratosphere. And what he decided to do from there was to make what has since become known as his Vengeance Trilogy, um, starting with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance in 2002, Old Boy came along in 2003, and Sympathy for Lady Vengeance in 2005. Which... I feel like even for a lot of people to this day that you think Park Chan-wook and that is the version of him as a filmmaker that they see um, and that is where his reputation was forged and yeah, that's tied to incredibly stylized ultra-violence um, very kind of deeply rooted in his identity filmmakers, western filmmakers someone like Quentin Tarantino in particular began to champion him pretty loudly around that point and you can understand why because you're really speaking to the way that Tarantino makes his own films and what he seems to like in movies when you get to that kind of version of Park Chan-wook. The thing is, from there, his career has become much, much more kind of varied than I think it's often given credit for. So you get what's like a sci-fi rom-com that is really kind of, I don't know, whimsical and light and absurd in I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay in 2006. Then in 2009, he makes, uh, I guess, vampire erotic mystery thriller in Thirst. By 2013, then, he moves into the English language and he makes Stoker with Nicole Kidman and uh, Maya Wasikowska. And then maybe the crowning achievement of kind of the latter stages of his career. Latter's the wrong word because he should have plenty of filmmaking career still left in him, but I guess the middle half of his career is The Handmaiden, which came out in 2016, has widely been hailed as one of the best films of the past, let's say, 10 to 15 years at this point, um, which is kind of an epic mystery, or mystery's the wrong word, epic crime story that kind of trades heavily in kind of eroticism and falls into like a kind of a traditional Asian saga as much as anything else. And between The Handmaiden, which was his previous feature film before Decision to Leave, he also made one other thing, which is he made a miniseries for AMC and the BBC, um, an adaptation of Jean le Carre's The Little Drummer Girl, starring Florence Pugh and one of the roles that really catapulted her to the Florence Pugh who she's become and the kind of couple of years since then. Um, Michael Shannon, Alexander Skarsgård, uh, a really, really phenomenal. Uh, I think at this point, probably underappreciated, not talking about very often. And I feel like maybe some people missed it. That's not the easiest thing to find because of, it being an AMC BBC thing as opposed to if it had been on HBO or whatever it might be. But for anyone who hasn't seen The Little Drummer Girl, I don't think there's a whole lot better in terms of 
spy storytelling like particularly on screen it just hasn't been done that well in a really really long time so with that i guess there's a there's a clear evolution i think particularly in terms of style his more recent work is just increasingly spoke to me more and more i really really love old boy like just about everyone and um, the other two films of the vengeance trilogy didn't quite speak to me um i really like thirst stoker was something where i remember that jumping out and some of the the transitions in particular there's a famous transition i i don't believe you've seen stoker um but where there's this sequence of my wasikowska brushing nicole kidman's hair I've got a close-up on Nicole Kidman's hair as it's being brushed, and it just very seamlessly dissolves into kind of wispy hay blowing in a field where your eye is completely unable to discern where where one thing has changed from another. And that is that is a really an increasing feature in Park Chan Wook's filmmaking. Um, he spoke about it particularly on the press for this movie, but he has certainly toned down the violence significantly over the past decade. Um, it seems like in a pretty conscious attempt that, okay, that's not for everyone. And I want to make things that can reach a broader audience. Um, he has really toned down the sex in his movies too. I mean, the handmaiden is an exception, but it is kind of intrinsic to the story. And with that, I, I just think it's, his style has come to the fore more often. He relies on his ability to conceive of shots and stories in ways that are truly cinematic that very, very few, if any, other filmmakers working are capable of doing. Like, coming out of Decision to Leave, I found it impossible to feel anything other than like, oh, well, this is like a top three director alive right now. Like, there, there aren't many directors capable of taking story like he can and imagining in a way that's so arresting and so creative and is so fully in command of like the full range of cinematic tools both picture and sound um did you like you're used to doing a podcast with me where you listen to me talk about style and things i'm interested in for quite some time so when i rave about a film like that you probably half going in expecting some elements of like that but did the kind of I guess the the mastery of craft and some of the playfulness and the imagination that Park brings to Decision to Leave and telling this story, did some of that jump out to you or have you spent any time even kind of thinking, I guess, how that script would be told by just, not even just any old kind of replacement level director, but a good director compared to how Park Chan-wook tells it? Yeah, I think there are things within the story that takes some that involves some risk taking that someone who cares about their film having style and not just telling the story from point a to point z um something for example there are scenes when our primary character detective is staking out this woman who he's starting to have a a fascination with and during the stakeouts and some of the voiceover or some of the times there, I guess he's talking on the phone to someone else and he's watching her. He'll place the character in the room uh, with the stakeout. So it's like, I'm watching you, but visually for the viewer, it's like they're in the room with the person. I think that's something that uh, kind of 
raises the intimacy that's developing throughout the film. Uh, so it's very key in, in establishing uh, a relationship that's getting into a more murky territory. Uh, there are some overhead visual shots on a beach that I think really, really blew me away. Uh, one that would make a really great poster. Uh, and then there, some of the scenes where the camera is just like following the characters and we're moving throughout the space. And it's not like, you know, like what's the, what's like the basic, like, here's how I'm showing two characters interacting that you, you always reference. Is it shot, reverse shot, shot, like reverse shot editing. Yeah. We are just cutting from one perspective to the other. Show you this, show you that. And this one, it's just like kind of moving throughout the world. Like I'm shooting through a structure that like the camera's focusing, moving along with the characters, but like I'm, I'm peeking around the corner and that's, or it was like, it was through some kind of like thing that should be blocking where they're like walking through one on one of their like, why are they walking together in this like it remind they get to a place that reminds me of like the carnival from carnival of souls but i, I don't remember exactly <laughs> where that was um but yeah it's just it's 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 not it's is that the buddhist it's temple never, is that what you're talking about well that's offensive now that i've made that comparison it's not, it's not offensive uh, but it is uh, a big when they're at this like grand buddhist temple on well, I guess yes. it's kind of a date where they first really bond together in a more open way. Yeah, the playfulness of their bonding is mixes with the playfulness of the camera and just some of the inventiveness of the way that they're shot, uh, I think, definitely stood out to me. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, like I, you tell me where you love a movie, I'm like, uh, it's going to be very stylish and taking big swings. And I think it this stood out to me on a first watch uh maybe more so than others when you would say something like that because i think it is it is doing a lot we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
I think with that though, there's also there's no element of style for style's sake in the movie. Every choice made for purposes of style is also performing a function in the film, which is it's just a level that's very hard to wrap your head around for a director to be operating at that one they can think of these really creative inventive setups that you haven't seen a whole bunch of ever before but they're also doing it in complete service of the characters and the plot so for example um that formal device that is used repeatedly that you alluded to where when we have a character staking out the other character from a distance we're then placed into the room like that is very practical in terms of I want to show you what it feels like, how intimate, how personal, how invasive it is um, for someone to be staking out, essentially be spying on them, observing their life and trying to make connections from a, from a distance. Um, it really is just like someone uninvited floating through your your home, your space. So that's that's something that is very, very interesting and alive and dynamic and keeps the audience's attention. And even with that, it's not just splicing a character in the room. Like the camera work is really interesting around that in terms of you'll get these kind of pans where we're going from him being staked out outside, then you'll pan around and he's appearing. Just really nice, playful, playful use there. Um, but even when you're talking about shot reverse shot, one of the shots that I missed really, um, I don't know, I guess I was just focusing on the hole and it took the rewatch, but I saw a tweet and I know I sent you the tweet. And breaking it down when i saw it a second time i was just kind of glued to it and it's again it's just really interesting choice of framing and really i don't know imaginative deliberate like there's something that's so totally well taught true where you've got an interrogation scene these two characters and we've got a mirrored surface behind them which for anyone who knows about movies or anyone who's even just given like shooting against a mirror, the slightest bit of thought, uh, that's a problem. So you're obviously getting into some elements of trickery with that. But how do you play with that? And if you're going to do that, like, and you're going to put a mirror there, what are you going to do with it? How is it going to make the shot more interesting? What are you going to be able to, to tell the audience or reveal to the audience about character or character reactions in the moment? And what Park Chan-wook does is he'll have the characters sitting opposite each other at the table. We've got the mirror behind them and one character will be in focus in the foreground and out of focus in the mirror and the reverse will happen with the other and he can rack focus switch perspectives. Like it's used so, so gracefully and so cleverly that it's, it's not distracting. It's not taking away from the subject matter of the scene. Um, but it's the kind of little detail that once you notice, once you pick up on it, you're like, okay, the the level of what we're working with here is entirely different. And one thing I want to shout out because it's the kind of thing that I don't know if it's just if it's just the way I view film that I I wouldn't always necessarily go to this kind of area first. But I think this is particularly the case in uh, the Handmaiden as well. Without doubt the little drummer girl is maybe the best designed tv show i've ever seen the production design in park john looks most recent work is phenomenal and every space and every detail of every space is just perfect and again when we talk to making decisions that are kind of outwardly stylish decisions but they're also serving the characters so for example when we see the two characters the movie focuses primarily on their homes 
they have this kind of really intricate um lavish wallpaper adorning their walls i don't know if you picked up on this that makes for a really striking background to your shots it's like really kind of classical as you'd imagine this kind of idea of an asian kind of you know overlapping almost recurring motif wallpaper and in one of the characters the wallpaper is made up of waves and in the other it's made up of mountains which is speaking to a core kind of idea that plays throughout the film something that factors into the plot too but it's just these kind of decisions it's not distracting you're not like oh there's the mountains behind that person but you will be like wow look at how beautiful like the space looks that apartment the detail there um i always find he's a director who really clearly delineates color like his movies pop with color because it's all very purposeful and intentional. It's not like we're going to make this shot look red. It's I'm going to kind of decorate the frame and we're going to have mixes of color here or there. And it, it all comes together to make something that looks honestly quite unique in a way that's bold and pops off the screen. So I just think in terms of style, in terms of design all around, Park Chan Wook is on a level that is really, really mind blowing. But Decision to Leave brings a lot of that to the fore. Um, let's let's get into some of the elements of the film itself. We should probably hold back somewhat. I don't want to go full spoiler here. Um, we can kind of talk in broad strokes because I'm aware some people may not have seen this. I know it's still in theaters here. I believe it is still in some theaters in the US. It will be on movie, I would guess, in the next month or so for anyone who hasn't been able to catch it or if it wasn't released in cinemas near them. Um, the film to me jumped out as being very like something that is very very important to me in terms of its structure in terms of the overall shape of its setup um that is vertigo this is this is park chanwook's vertigo park chanwook has spoken about how vertigo is the film that made him want to make films uh, it's his favorite film of all time he's a director who has frequently been compared to hitchcock and you can certainly see lots of Hitchcockian flourishes throughout his work um, and yet in speaking about this doing press for something he is, he's kind of denied this he said he's seen it after the fact but at no point did he intentionally set out to make his own version of Vertigo another film that's come up as a comparison very often is Basic Instinct Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct which again the core structure of the film very very closely mirrors that um, maybe in a much more literal way in the case of basic instinct uh, for Park he says he sees after the fact things that are very intentionally kind of vertigo whether they were subconscious or not because it's that kind of deeply rooted in who he is as a filmmaker how he processes film but the lead character in the film is a detective called Heijun um who works in Busan in the big city and is commuting back and forth between there and I believe it's pronounced Ippo, um, uh, a more rural city kind of permanently under mist and fog where his wife lives and works in a nuclear power plant. So he commutes back and forth between the places, working in the city as a detective failing miserably in any attempts to sleep and he essentially inherits this case to start of the film very early in the film 
So a retired immigration worker has fallen off a mountain um, that he had climbed, is found dead at the bottom, and it falls on Heijun and his partner to determine whether there's any foul play, whether this is a suicide, whether it's a murder, what exactly might have happened. And that brings him into the orbit of Sorey, who is the man who died much younger, wife. She is a Chinese immigrant who speaks so-so Korean, which is a level of this film that I, unfortunately we can't quite engage with, but I, I have talked a lot about how there's clearly an extra layer if you were a fluent Korean speaker and you were hearing um, Sorey speak Korean and her attempts at it and where she gets phrasing right, where she gets it wrong. Um, but that that incident brings Heijun into Sao Rey's world where she's obviously a suspect. She's a suspect in the case. They feel like she is not all that upset about her husband dying. Um, she has all kinds of bruises, which make it seem like he probably abused her. Um, and from there, he begins to basically stake out her apartment follow around in her life, try to get a sense of could she be a, a part of it? And the story unfolds from there. Um, Did you get the vertigo thing? Did did that jump out to you like it did to me? Is that something that my brain is just programmed that way because I care so much about that film? Or is it something that just kind of makes sense in hindsight but wasn't necessarily just kind of beating you over the head with it up front? I only got it when when you asked me what like what is this movie and then we were talking about it and you're like i think you i don't know if you gave me a hint or whatever but uh it's not something that jump hit me over the head the first time i saw it just because i think i was so deeply invested in this particular story but it's obviously there upon hindsight um i mean for me what jumps out thematically in in watching this for the first time is it's it's a film about obsession and how that obsession can transfer. Because uh, we've got, you know, him living a sleepless life, being so just caught up on unsolved cases. He's got a wall full of pictures of cases that he hasn't been able to solve that he just obsesses over. Uh, like you said, he's on on the phone with his partner on a long drive. He can't sleep. Um, he's living uh, this weekend marriage with his wife and he's just stuck in this cycle of uh, pleasant, boring weekends, stressful work, not sleeping, and it's just an endless cycle for him. And, sh- and she comes in and is like throwing a, a knife in the dishwasher or the uh, garbage disposal and just like interrupting the cycle and allowing him to transfer all this attention and obsession onto her. And I guess the, the vertigo of it all is him trying to untangle what really happened. And then on the path to that, rather than um, does he want to solve this case or does he want to solve this case in a way that absolves her? And has has he lost the plot on the way to that? Because in his previous 
days and what we know about him is he he considers himself this honorable detective who's going to do things by the book we see his partner who's i think this one of the things the film does is a very serious film the romance the drama of it all but we balance out humor sprinkled in throughout Mm -hmm. uh so that you know it, it, it doesn't get a little too uh overall there his bumbling partner who's the, the bad cop in the good cop bad cop routine that they that they would play probably not by design he just seems to be a a very po- problematic policeman but th- you, we see the contrast between them those two as professionals and then we get to see his professionalism the veneer of that professionalism stay there but it slowly slowly get stripped away as the obsession and the infatuation goes from uh, his work and doing the right thing and solving the case to who is this person? Like, why can't I look away from her? And uh, I thought that was really compelling. So that might have been so so deep in in that story that the vertigo, vertigo of it all didn't come out until after the fact. Yeah, and that's funny because really what you describe is vertigo too. Like that that level of obsession. Obsession is obviously the driving force of vertigo. But the idea it plays with that I feel like, yeah, there of course there are other detective movies that fully delve into that. But it probably doesn't happen often enough because the central element of a job like that is you've got to be somewhat obsessive and you've got to be obsessive about the cases. And if you're obsessive about the cases or you're obsessive about solving the case or even i guess seeking justice for a victim if you're the kind of detective who feels like you're working on behalf of others what you're left to obsess over is what's left behind or who's left behind and that is very much where this story kind of gets anchored and it's it's also it's worth noting like the film really in when it when it comes to Heijun we we essentially start out in Ippo with him visiting his wife and getting a sense of what their relationship is like and what his routine is like and everything is good everything is fine but there's something missing there's something missing and I don't know if part of that is that maybe in all of his kind of quest or obsession it's also part of it is he wants someone who's going to reciprocate that and he finds someone through various ways whether it's actions words or uh i guess essentially playing games who is just as interested in the cat and mouse of all of that and starts to feel something that i guess wasn't quite there or working for him before yeah and that that's uh it's funny uh that that was uh, one of the things that um, stuck out to me as well because one of my uh, my favorite things in rom coms is when they give us uh, the guy to root for uh, at the end and the guy that it, in the middle isn't so bad like it's like oh well they need this but this guy's not so bad he's not a cartoonish villain and I think that's the life that he lives with his wife where it's just like you know they're having boring little Friday nights eating soup uh, and having Monday in sex uh, and that's all fine. The, the one thing I, I kept thinking about with him is uh, there, there's two lines of thinking here. Did he need a spark or did he just need to get some sleep? Because I think you could make the case for, for, for both options because uh, th- just the, 
I think the the performance in this fi- performances in this film uh, are really great mm-hmm. um, because there's just like a a blank slate expression that he needs to have through throughout this film that still communicates so much about just like how enraptured he's becoming in obviously like we said before not solving this case but getting to know uh so ray more and uh like getting to a point where oh see she didn't do anything kind of a thing and i think he he plays uh that all so well and then uh, and obviously she has to be as captivating for the audience uh as she is for him and there's it's subtle because it's just i think it's just the the mystery and the the confidence of it all and you can see why that he considers him her so compelling especially compared to the life he is leading and it it could be nothing more than the the stagnation of uh a relationship a career whatever it may be um and just uh and i think part i think part of what becomes so compelling for him is the even even though he's working so hard to come away with some sense of innocence from her, I think the not knowing and the wondering if there is a degree of uh, unsavoriness is the wrong word, but a degree of uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is with her, but like the fact that there is something I, unsavoriness that be, might be underselling. Yeah, like I think it works, but the, like she, she might be evil. And yeah. He, uh, yeah. He knows it, and it's kind of like there's a fascination there where he's half prepared to turn a blind eye, but also, yeah, he wants to keep close. He wants to get to the root of that, and I don't know, there's maybe even something slightly more sinister just in terms of his own psyche that he's going to unpack of, well, am I actually drawn to that? Is is it yeah. more appealing to me that she may be a criminal? Um, and And, like, I think the excitingness of the relationship uh compared to kind of the boredom he's seeing in it in his own marriage and also the evilness in her compared to the straight laced nature of the career he's uh gone down are kind of like parallel path and she represents a break from both of them rather than just one or the other so yeah the evilness in him that being to a degree a feature not a bug in this whole obsession and kind of like he he just keeps digging and going further further down into uh the well so to speak yeah and i mean there's also he's clearly very much obsessed with his work uh, has an obsessive personality generally but in the interactions we see so ray is very much interested for various reasons and engaging with him in his work like and wants to know about it and wants to help him process that and like whatever is actually going on beneath the surface there whatever the real motives are that is very different to when we see him talk about work with his wife where on a couple of occasions i think she warns off like the dangers of it and particularly in a big city like busan why would you not transfer to here um which he ultimately does later in the film um, yeah, there's a line I, that she throws out there uh, when he does move, and she's like, oh, like, basically, oh, yeah, you got a murder, like, when there's a murder in yeah. the town, like, how happy should you be, kind of a thing, and she's just very dismissive of it all. Very much so, which is the complete opposite of what he's getting from Sal Ray, and with all of that, 
Talking about really, really interior performances here, even in Sol Ray, I think a character that would be played a lot louder in a lot of films and by a lot of actors, Tang Wei um, does a really, really phenomenal job with her portrayal of that character. But that's also what's at work. You've got these two pretty quiet performances at the heart of the film, where as an audience, you're also having to parse out in the same way that Hey John is like you're trying to work out exactly who she is, and you might at a couple of times get a step or two ahead of him, but there is still that element of these characters are pretty coy with each other, probably pretty coy with themselves, and there's a gradual parceling out of okay, well, who who are they? Who like what is it that's at the heart of them? What drives them? What kind of person are we talking about here? Um. Um, without getting into specifics, I don't really, I want to dive deep into the second half of the movie, but we we might talk a little bit and we'll put up a spoiler warning. Um, there's certainly something there. Again, you get this split, which is very much a Vertigo-esque reset, not exactly in the same way. When I compare this film to Vertigo, it's probably good to point out, I don't mean completely literally but in terms of the dynamics of a character, in terms of one chapter of a life seemingly closing and then just this figure reappearing and almost continuing to haunt or continuing to just capture and keep keep a grip on a character's mind, uh, it's very, very much right there. But in a way that's even more kind of, I don't know, dramatically alive because you're asking yourself questions about just how sinister this might be and the character at the heart of the film ends up asking that it's it's something that i i think is a really kind of fun thing to watch play out on screen because you're getting you're getting this mix again where it feels like we almost get a resolution and okay we know who characters are and then we're set up a place it's like well, are they actually better or worse again, even than what we thought we'd clearly established at this point? Well, there's so much ambiguity surrounding her motives throughout the entire film. And then to your point, we get to this area where reemergence and then the question of like, is this a game? And then we get to a point where it's like, well, maybe, but there's a clear indicator that the obsession that was primarily on one end is actually on both ends, but the, just the way that <laughs> one of these characters chooses to keep that connection alive is uh, a little bit deranged, but also fit in fitting with what he so clearly has been drawn to the entire time. So, that jump in the second half of the film, I think is just so well done and so well crafted and just accelerates this. It, it was a movie that, uh, I lost this movie's so well paced and plotted for a movie. That's over two hours. It, it, it moves yeah, along. It, it roars along and it's long. Like we get to a point that felt like I, I I just assumed I'd been in the movie for its entire runtime and I thought it was coming along to a an ending where we get this sort of bit of resolution and then it carries on for another I guess half hour and uh and builds to an even bigger crescendo and I think just the 
acceleration and just like the punch to the face that is some of the revelations throughout the very end there's uh even not the ending but we won't talk about this because i think it's worth saying but there's just like a a bit of dialogue and confession and then a reveal via something that i think is just a really nice bit of uh people saying things to each other and interpreting them how they want to interpret them i I really loved yeah i really uh i really Uh, love the bit that you know i'm talking about (laughs) yeah even in that case what actually drives the events of the film at that point is the interpretation of a third character of those events too, who really wasn't kind of privy to it at all at the time, which is very interesting. It's phenomenally well-written, like tightly plotted for as kind of wild and weird as it can be in terms of the twists and turns and how it explores the psychology of these characters. It's really tightly plotted and well-written, which um, it's not exactly a surprise, but there have been a couple of instances, which I mean, have specifically been to to be fair, and it explains it. Um, his contributions to English language stuff, Park Chan Wook has not been the writer on. So he didn't write on a little drummer girl. He didn't write on Stoker. I think, particularly in Stoker's case, you can feel a film that the script just isn't quite. It doesn't have that elevated little bit extra that I think Park Chan Wook would give it. Um, and he is making, it's not a bad script, but he is making something really special out of what he's working with. It's when you see him kind of go back to, to writing though, in this way, um, even after something like the little drummer girl, which is very well written and you're like, okay, he just, he has a really tight command on that. He knows exactly how to write for the kind of film that he wants to direct, which sounds like something very obvious but i don't necessarily think all writer directors are good at that um uh, there are two very different skills to sit down and write a really great script but then also to either write a script that's tailored to your abilities your vision as a director or to be able to interpret it to the vision that it needs for the film i those two things aren't always kind of running hand in hand there are lots of great directors um who sure they've written and directed some of their own stuff but they don't necessarily do it. And to be honest, a lot of the greatest directors, particularly in Hollywood throughout history, have worked with, whether it's kind of recurring writers or if it's just kind of they're picking up screenplays here or there and what interests them. It's true to this day. It was true then. But when you see someone who's got kind of such a really kind of clear, well-defined voice, both on a page and on screen, uh, that's a very, very impressive thing because it's not easy to accomplish at all. Um, so something else I want to shout out here is the score um, from Jo Young-wook, who has been the composer, I think, for I think for every, maybe not every film, for, for a lot of films with Park Chan-wook. He did Joint Security Area, did Old Boy, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, Thirst. Um... The vast majority will will put it down as also The Handmaiden and The Little Drummer Girl. So I think outside of obviously the first two films, the only one missing there is potentially Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Um, 
a really iconic sound. Like there's something very, very unique about a score to a Park Chan Wook film. And this is one of the best I think that Joe Young Wook has created. I don't know if this is a word we've used yet, and maybe in part it's because there is something slightly twisted about it. But if you were to push me to be like, what genre is this film? Or what is the, like, this is an achingly romantic film. It is so overwhelmingly romantic. And with so many of the kind of twists and turns of the script that are subverting certain elements of that too. Like, I think the film leans into like a circy and melodrama points and other times it completely rebuffs that and goes off in a different direction and there's sure there's mystery there there's film noir there's a really wide range of styles and story types at work but uh, ultimately I think it boils down to Park Chan Wook telling a romantic story and the driver for that is the really kind of soft delicate tones of the score and not just the score but also there is um, a song that recurs throughout the film which I need to get the name of now before I forget um, but that is kind of completely central to one the themes but also this kind of sense of romance just kind of wafting over everything I feel like it's called The Mist but it is um but I can't remember like who they said was the originator and what the cover was, but we've get a few different characters uh, singing it throughout. Um, yeah, I thought the score was perfect uh, tonally for, for the the heavy romance um, that's being portrayed. Uh, and also, I think... Uh, what doesn't happen is also just like fits perfectly along the story. Um, so the, the restraint that the, the script showed, I, I wanted to mention earlier, I think is pretty powerful. Uh, I, I almost forgot that this movie started in a gun range. Um, and now yeah. the New York times re- review I have has that there. I, I don't know. I don't know what that means uh, symbolically, but for some reason I had forgotten. That's how that's how twisty and turny and deep down the romantic rabbit hole we go. Uh, the the song is just called Mist. No, the um, don't want to have a new Mac the barbar the barbarian situation on our hands. So it's, <laughs> the song is called Mist, and it's by a famous Korean folk singer called Jung Hoon Hee. Um, I, I think one of the things that just even again maybe we haven't hammered home enough when you talk about the film opening at a gun range is like the elements of just like classic police procedural in this film too particularly we'll say the first third of the film uh, we've another case kind of running concurrently that's being investigated and the dynamic you mentioned some of the comedic relief that comes from um from the partner i can't remember that character's name um, but Heijun's partner, I think it's Suwon. Yes, it's Suwon. Um, but there is also something to like the real classic good cop, bad cop, and the workings of trying to piece something together. And you've got great chase sequences. You've got a point of view shot in a chase where the criminal running away from them 
the camera it's we essentially locked onto his face and everything is blurring around it's moved so fast again just really just kind of electric invigorating filmmaking uh but it, it just kind of functions so well on all of these levels all of the different elements of movies that are there it's not just like this kind of hodgepodge that's shown together it actually works and each part is given sufficient care and attention to make it kind of sing together as a whole suan clearly does not uh keep up his uh physical fitness uh enough <laughs> to uh, uh do the the running requirements that it takes to keep up with criminals uh he got outrun by his partner that hasn't had a full night does not sleep years. yeah yeah and, and so. yet I, I do think suan might still live a a harder lifestyle. He may party a little bit harder. It might be kind of a lot of heavy nights out for Suan. Yeah, uh, I've seen in in uh, television food travel shows the areas where like you know it's been the end of a long hard day and there's just a bunch of guys in suits just like hammering beers in, in a very confined space. And you know I was talking about how much I wanted to go to the the Irish pub uh, after seeing Banshees of Inisherin. I want to go to one of these styles of uh, drinkeries, we'll call it, rather than an eatery, whatever it may be, uh, but not the one they went to because it seems like violence could break out at any time there based on uh, just kind of the rowdiness that was going on. And Suwon might be responsible for a lot of like fist fights on weekends. What is your overall impression? Because I'm aware here, too, that when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, Andrew would really like... Uh would like to see people eat and drink in like Hong Sang Su's films. Uh, but we obviously, back around the time of Parasite, we did an episode on Bong Joon-ho, so you watched a lot, if not all, of Bong's films at that time. Um, now encountering something like Decision to Leave. What what kind of in the broadest strokes possible? I know you don't have kind of a comprehensive well to draw from, but what's the impression that you're developing of Korean cinema? Because I think it's... It's important to weigh it up, too, because you have someone like Park Chan-wook who broke through to the mainstream. I say mainstream loosely, but broke through to primarily English-speaking and primarily Western audiences as not being the most obscure of arthouse filmmakers a long, long time ago and has continued along that track. Um, And honestly, I think you see something like this, I think at a different time, different place, like this could capture some Parasite-like energy momentum in an awards race it won't this year it doesn't seem like it there hasn't been that kind of talk around this film which kind of confuses me but i think park is absolutely capable of being that kind of director and yet whether it is bong films or it's park films, there is also something that is distinctly different about them so what kind of impression are you starting to build of korean cinema albeit that you're probably forming it based off impressions of maybe the two best working Korean directors works. Yeah, I will say specifically for these two, it seems like, uh, you know, very visually innovative and crafty uh, storytellers that aren't pigeonholed into genre. Like, I feel like you're not going to say like, this is all, an unfair comparison because of just the breadth of this person's career, but uh, some someone being like, "Oh, look, uh, Scorsese made another mafia movie." It was like something that they would people would try and pigeonhole him into, and which is unfair. But any any that, saying that, that about that happens though. That happens in Park Chan Wook. 
Really? Because yeah, when well, you were going through the Vengeance trilogy, going... th- that's still that's and that's kind of the point I was making. It's a long time since he's made movies like that, but I okay. do still feel like for a lot of people, that's it's like the kind of Scorsese Goodfellas Casino run, where it's just like that <laughs> follows him around somewhat, and he's actively booking against it too. He... Yeah, because I get I got the opposite impression based on when you were going through his filmography and then me thinking about Old Boy and then thinking about this. So it's funny that so the uh, the comparison's unfair on both. So my point still stands. Yeah, no, your point's stop, completely stop, valid. Stop par- stop pigeonholing him. But that's like kind of the the vibe I get for both him and uh, Bong because I mean, like like you said there, there's a Dracula or vampire not dracula uh, uh vampire movie we've got this romantic mystery thriller the old boy the hyper violent uh noir kind of like would john wick exist if old boy didn't exist who's to say um no, i, I uh, don't think so yeah exactly uh so i think he's covering a lot of ground there and then bong i mean memories of murder is it i i mean in this more more along the lines of like a combination of of, of this mystery uh thriller noir kind of hard-boiled detective shit uh drama and then you've got the host and then you've got parasite and he's covering a lot of different genres and just bringing his own unique style and voice to that so i think that that's the biggest takeaway i would have and then in terms of you describing his filmography his vengeance trilogy uh drummer girl stoker and then jumping in with this uh, I guess six years after he'd made his previous film to me and I like I haven't seen all of his films but this seems like the culmination of a career for someone and someone just really tapping into his into a masterpiece in the middle of their career which is incredibly exciting like you said he's still got uh, plenty of directing years left but I mean much like with Parasite which is not my favorite nor uh, the best Bong Joon-ho movie but it feels like a filmmaker showing I've still got it and I can still just like make an absolute masterpiece. Um, I don't know what that says about Korean cinema overall. I think I need to <laughs> broaden my range a little bit and see a few more directors. But uh, these two gentlemen are, are, are making clearly some of the, the best movies of their generation, which is impressive and more people need to see them. Well, I, I think what I think about when I think of Korean cinema, and I was curious of like to what extent that jumps out to you is you can feel you can feel the influences often leaning more westward than some other Asian cinemas. And you've got something that is still inherently Korean, it is still inherently of the East and what what films made in that part of the world are. But I do feel like they often play more naturally in a big way to American audiences or European audiences, because there is something that is quite relatable. Like Bong Joon-ho is definitely the best example of that because he's constantly reaching for something like Fincher. And that that's probably a two-way street with those guys at that point too. I mean, Fincher's talked about that with Zodiac and Memories of Murder's influence on, on that film. But there's, there is something at play, I think, in a lot of kind of major Korean filmmakers where they're able to infuse something that is inherently Korean and is part of their kind of national identity on screen with something that is also driven very clearly by not just 
Hollywood, but also world cinema more generally, which it's not like that's something that only happens in Korea. But I, I do think, for example, the weight of like cinema history is slightly heavier in Japan. And Japanese films often have more that is inherently from a Japanese film culture to draw upon. It doesn't mean that there aren't directors who kind of also are able to channel things in a similar way, but I do think it is always something that's quite striking. And I don't think it's a coincidence that more than anything in the past kind of decade to 20 years, it's Korean cinema is the the kind of subsection of Asian cinema that has really kind of grown to prominence on a global scale and for English speaking audiences. I think it is tapping into something there. Um, you, another, sorry, go on. Do you think that, what, what do you think the catalyst for that has been? Is it just that these two directors in particular were influenced particularly heavy by some of those filmmakers, uh, American filmmakers, whatever it may be, and then really steered into those influences and like, became successful or, or was there something else that kind of I'm missing in the history like I not that you have to be a film historian on the spot for me here but just a no and I'm, I'm, to mind. I'm not I, I haven't done I've never done the research in a really deep dive way on what I do think is an undeniable element of it which is the economics of the Korean film industry it seems to be very well funded um you watch a lot of major Korean films, a lot of Korean films that will make it overseas, and you'll see like CJ Entertainment at the start of it, who just seem to be very, very active investors. Um, as a nation, seem to be ardent film goers. So if you've got a very well supported um film industry at a local level, this is maybe it's also something that's tough, I think, for American audiences sometimes or for people like in my part of the world where so much of what we watch is American produced film content to, to imagine when it kind of shrinks down and it's much more, it kind of has to be centralized in some ways. There has to be a couple of very notable players, whether it's in a government funding sense in some countries, or if there's a major studio that's driving it, whatever it is, there has to be kind of one to two central forces. Uh, look, this is maybe a conversation we'll have later in the year and talking about, stuff made in Ireland this year because in my life there's never been a year where there's been as many just really high quality Irish productions um, as many high profile directors coming to Ireland to make stuff and I know for example part of that reason is we have a massive massive wealth of like film industry professionals of crew ready to go We've got sound stages. We've actually got way too many sound stages and they keep building them. And we've got tax incentives that make it appealing for the likes of Netflix or the likes of Disney or the likes of whatever smaller production company. And then what has that done? That's birded the likes of uh, some like elements to become a really influential player and become a go-to for filmmakers like Sebastian Lelio or Joris Lantimos. Um, it helps to birth something like Cartoon Saloon and I think in applying that to Korea, part of it too is for modern Korean cinema, Park Chan-wook is, he is the gatekeeper. He's what opened the doors. Like, and it's that thing of in the early to mid 2000s of having an old boy and then having the host come along a few years later. Like they are big films that can play to a large audience in America, in England, in France, whatever it is. They're not just, 
oh, there's this really interesting drama from, you know, this part of the world. It's like, no, this is big spectacle. Like it's, it's just like everything you're looking for in your like kind of traditional generic Hollywood blockbuster. So uh, I think that's a part of it is you always just need something to start a movement to get more people, more opportunities, but it does seem like the infrastructure is there. So they obviously have an industry that's strong enough to support that, that's strong enough to let these people go and experiment and make things that are really made for their own market first and foremost. I think that's always crucial too when something's not in English. You can't you can't make it with eyes on how will this play in America. You've got to make it the best film it could possibly be. And if it's good enough, it will get out there through festival circuits, through award circuits, and it will it will get some acclaim. I, I would really like to in part because there's a film that I've spent years trying to get you to watch and you haven't watched it yet. And maybe at some point when we find a lull, which could be a couple of months away, uh, if there's a lull in new releases, we might do an episode on Lee Chang Dong, another Korean director who might be my favorite. I haven't seen all those films. Some of them are pretty hard to get your hands on. So we'll have to work that one out for doing an episode. But I have been on your case for quite some time about Burning, his film from 2018, which was one of my favorites of that year. Uh, Burning is just like the word you've been using to describe, for example, this film and your your view of Old Boy is bonkers. There's there's something to that with Burning too. There's something that's so kind of, I know it's fully within reach for an audience that grows up on a certain kind of English-speaking cinema. There's this element of tension of mystery and yet it is also entirely its own thing and it's got a level of kind of working with its own world and pulling from the absurdities of that that just makes it kind of home at a different level and uh, so maybe maybe we'll get a Li chang dong episode going at some point and we'll continue to expand your your knowledge of modern korean cinema uh, that sounds good and- yeah i've cir- i've circled it a few times and now i'm really you know taking a task publicly maybe i might get around to it <laughs> Listen, that's the only way I can, I think, win that battle is to some point just be like, Andrew, next week you've got to watch Burning. Um, yeah, you're like, uh, you're like Coach K, like, like you know, <laughs> you know what, you know which player you need to yell at, you know which one you need to embarrass, you know which one you need to pat on the back, uh, Numak. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's also a what time? It's like, yeah, okay, Andrew really, really likes this Korean film. He's just saying, well, let's. Let's use that to get him to to dive in a little bit further and check out this other film that I I know you would like. And I think most people listening, I I really struggle. I'm sure they exist. I really struggle to imagine someone who like watches Burning, who properly commits to it, devotes themselves to it, and doesn't come away pretty blown away by that film. Um it's it's very, very special incredibly entertaining Stephen Young's in it as well for I mean anyone who's now familiar with Stephen Young was a big film in launching the version of Stephen Young that ends up in Minari and I think has become kind of the movie star that he's probably now going to be over the next decade plus is he he's in another 2022 release not to get off track am I misremembering that oh I'll I'll take this offline yeah, oh yeah, I watched that I watched that what am I talking about (laughs) yes of course um which is a pretty big one and he is going to be in um, Mickey Seven, which is Bong Joon Ho's next film, um, which is a big kind of sci-fi English language film that Bong Joon Ho's working on, and I believe it's 
produced by plan B. I think it's going to finish shooting pretty soon. So hopefully that's one back half of next year. Um, new Bong Joon-ho film. Uh, anyone, if if we did this on video, they could see just the the stream of snot running out my nose. So I've got <laughs> clearly a sickness coming on. So maybe I'll have much more time uh, no. to watch these films over the next week. <laughs> oh no, we don't think too much about that. Any Any final thoughts on decision to leave? I think we have done a good job. I don't. We don't need to go into specifics at the end. Uh, I also feel confidence is not the last time on the podcast will be done with decision to leave. So we can maybe dive into some other elements at a later date too. But for me, uh, my parting message is I just want to urge people to see it. And maybe we do that every week and it doesn't have as much impact. But I'm really urging you to see this one. If you're like, you want to see the good movies that are out this year. If you're like, I haven't seen anything that's really kind of did anything for me in a while you're going to be hard pushed to find something better than Decision to Leave from 2022. Yeah, so Decision to Leave and Banshees of Inner have had me to reevaluate the rest of the year in movies. Uh, because when we did our mid-year check-in, I had The Northman number one. And I just found these both to be so far above that uh, in watching them and thinking about them. I didn't, I, I thought that in the moment, but you know, you don't want to have a re- reactionary decision about this. Um, but I think at this moment, Decision to Leave, I think is the best movie I've seen this year. Um, so I'll echo your point that people should see it, that just the level of craft storytelling and you're like, like you said, we won't talk about the end, but like, I, this was, this was a movie where I was kind of just like in my seat, just being like, well, shit, that was a movie at the end. Like Harry Styles said in the press tour, we're going to start, we're going to end with don't worry, darling, Adam, that's what we're doing here. Like he said in the press tour for don't worry, darling, this was a movie that really felt like, you know, a movie. So that's, uh, that's the big takeaway for decision to leave right now. Uh, the best and my favorite movie that I've seen this year so far, you know, maybe something will come along and, and knock it out of the top spot, but it's, it's something that we're, we will rehash these conversations and may, uh, may talk about at the end of the year or the beginning of next year. You know how these things Oh, go. not even the beginning, about a, about a quarter to the next year, probably realistically around the yeah, movie years. Are weird. We, <laughs> we, we bring the curtain down on a movie year. We talked about this, it might have been last week or a couple of weeks ago, because you made reference to that episode we did in the middle of the year. And I really liked The Northman. I had already cooled on it slightly compared to you, I think, when we recorded that episode, but still very much liking it. It was in my top 10 then, too. It's barely clinging to top 20 now. And that's just, that's how movie years work. Like, there is a level of that built in. It's not how it's going to be for everything. It's not like some things that are out early in the year won't kind of hold on. But it is certainly something that's just its quirk in the calendar where something, if if you feel really strong about something in the first half of the year, I always think that's fantastic. Like, that's a great bonus because most of the the heavy hitting stuff has kind of been by design left until later in the year. So, um, yeah, I... It's always, I'm starting to think, like, what kind of year is it? And this is, I think, a revelation I came to on last year's Best Of pod, where I was just like, you know what? Every movie year is probably a great movie year for me because I love movies. And I watch so many that I'll always find enough that I really, really like. But I'm already at a point with quite a lot still to come that I'm interested in, where 
my in progress top 10 i find very very difficult to think what's going to come along that's going to make me move any of those films out so well i've been holding out on one just because i know it's probably going to be at the top spot so i'll get to that uh right before we do the list adam all right next up on make time for this later in the week we are going to have an episode previewing the world cup world cup starts on sunday and Andrew and I are going to be very locked in on it for the course of a month. Lots to talk about on all fronts surrounding the World Cup. We will do it all. We'll preview the tournaments. We'll probably go group by group. So heading into your weekend, if you want to get set for the World Cup, we will have you covered there. And I'm going to guess we'll probably do at least a couple of pods over the course of the tournament where we check in maybe at certain junctures. So that's coming on Make Time for this if you're into football or soccer, whatever you might like to call it, over the next month, we will have plenty of World Cup talk for you. Uh, we'll also have at least one movie pod next week. Haven't decided exactly what that is yet, because quite frankly, there are a lot of options on the table. We've reached the point of the year, a lot of stuff is coming out, and it's going to be a question of, okay, what's the best of what can we get Andrew to, and what, what was, makes uh, sense right now? I was scrolling down the weekend's play playing films uh for that reason and then i think the one that i locked in on is one that you don't have access to yet so we'll table that for another day well that's true but you should see that because (laughs) you should see it it seems important we'll talk about that offline um but yeah that does it more movie talk coming world cup talk up next to make sure you never miss anything pop culture or relates to anything else we all choose to talk about here on make time for this subscribe to us wherever you get your pods we're also on Twitter, for the time being at least, uh, make time for this. Worth noting on that, this goes for all listeners across the Eurostep Podcast Network. If you follow us individually on Twitter, if you follow any of the pods, if you're interested in what we do, times are very much uncertain over Twitter. The whole thing could just come crumbling down any day, really, it seems like. So whether you intend to leave or you don't, I I don't know how much choice people may ultimately have in the direction of Twitter. Um, as a failsafe, we have a really really strong discord server um where we've got channels for all things we cover across all of our podcasts there's a movie channel in there people can talk movies they can talk tvs there's all books talk all packers all brewers whatever you want it's there so go to gspn.info that's the home for all of the links all of the details you could possibly want on everything related to Eurostep podcast network and in there you'll find the link to get into our Discord server too. If you're looking for new places where you can stay on top of all things we do, also, you know, build community. Have the ability to kind of talk through some stuff with other people, like-minded folks. Um, That's a place we have already up and running that hopefully can continue to thrive on that front. Make sure you subscribe to the Eurostep Podcast Network for all things Milwaukee books. The main feed is home to the Eurostep with Tywin and Sharon Cotty and Win and Six with myself and Jordan Tresky. Andrew and I cover all things Milwaukee Brewers on Cruising for a Bruising. And Numac and Jordan cover all things Green Bay Packers on Talk of the Tundra. You also cover them when they lose. Only when they lose, which I'm I'm <laughs> just I'm now boycotting Talk of the Tundra in the hope that the Packers can win the title. Fair. Well, until next time. Thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>